My name is Gage. And I'm Ray. And you are listening to Goal Report, a true crime podcast. Yay! <laughs> if you're new here, then welcome, welcome. Hi, welcome. We hope that you're having a good day and, and a, good a good week. week. And, and a, a good, good life. life. Yay! Back at it again, wishing you that happy, safe, abundant, wonderful, bright, positive, full of healing, love, and interesting things kind of existence. <laughs> That just fell out of my mouth. I just completely seized. And I froze just sitting here looking at you like, what? I am not going to edit that out. I shall keep it. I'm keeping it. It won't end up on the editing room floor. No, no not at all. Not at all. If y'all can't see how weird and awkward I actually am, then what's the point? <laughs> So today, it's not going to be like a normal episode. Oh, really? Yes, because the person we are covering, and I know that you know who it is, it's Eileen Warnos. Oh, we. So this is about to be a lot. And it's about to be really fucking sad. Yes. This is sad. This is such a sad story. I want you guys to bear in mind that the subject matter that we are talking about includes sex work, rape, murder, and things along that line. A lot of really sad, really terrible stuff, as yes. always. So guys, buckle in, grab your snacks. And definitely something for your nerves, because this is about to be really, really long and really, really sad. Eileen Warnos was born Eileen Carol Pittman to Diane Warnos and Leo Dale Pittman on February 29th, 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. So Diane and Leo, they were married at a very young age. She was 14 and he was 18 Aww. at the time of their marriage. And they got married on June 3rd, 1954. Although we may be bothered by the age difference, we also have to consider that this was a very different time altogether. Back then, it was very common to have huge age differences between partners. So they didn't have these tough conversations about child brides or child predators and the like. Yeah, my grandmother actually got married at 14. Yeah. So and that, that definitely, it doesn't make it right. Well, at all, no. but it was a thing. And like my mom's parents, they have like 10 years between them. Yeah. This was very common. Does it make it right? No. But did it still unfortunately happen? Yes. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, Diane and Leo, they eloped. So they ran away together to get married. And it's speculated that Diane married Leo to escape her controlling and abusive father, Lori. Wow, gotcha. Unfortunately, the boy she married would end up to be just like or worse than her father. Oh, no. Oh, man. Yeah. 
Diane gave birth to their first child, Keith, on March 14th, 1955. And I really don't think this was a time of celebration and happiness because of what Diane had to endure during this marriage. Goodness gracious. Leo was very abusive toward Diane. He wouldn't let her go out of the house, not even to hang laundry outside to dry. What the fuck? He beat her, he cheated on her, he drank heavily, and he rarely worked any actual job. He was just a mooch, basically. And this was, as you can imagine, a very toxic relationship. He was also boosting cars. And instead of doing jail time for his crimes, he opted to join the U.S. Army in 1955. So it's like... You know, you're a mooch, you lay around all the time, you rarely work. You abuse the fuck out of your partner. Right. So to escape accountability for all of that, he just said, oh, well, fuck it, I'm going to go into the army. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Wow. When Leo left for the army, Diane filed for divorce. She and Leo were officially divorced on November 14th, 1955, and she took her chance while he was away to get this handled and escape her abuser. Goodness, that is so sad. And now... My God. She's got two children in tow. Keith was only 11 months older than Eileen, and she packed her babies up and left. Wow. An allowance she received from the army helped pay rent on an apartment. She was going to start a new life, and I'm sure she was also very relieved that... She was finally out of this very volatile relationship. I can imagine, like, my God. So she started picking up the pieces of her life and moving on, and she formed a friendship with Marge Larson and her husband, Larry, and these were her neighbors. Diane had landed a job as a phone operator, so Marge and Diane would take turns watching each other's kids. And after some time, Larry and Marge were divorced, so, Marge and Diane ended up becoming roommates. Oh, okay. okay. And one night, Diane left and never came back. What? That went from, like, kind of okay, maybe going in a smooth direction, to complete shit and sadness. Yeah. Very quickly. Yep. Eileen was six to nine months old, and Marge had no idea where Diane went. Like, had no indication whatsoever that Diane had intentions of leaving, and Marge never heard from her again. Oh my god. She couldn't understand it because, according to Marge, Diane was always a good mother to her children. Like, she had always taken really good care of them. So, Marge just basically got left with the kids. Oh my god, and she's 16. Uh, yeah, sometime around in there, yeah. Oh my god, she's so young. Yeah. I would, I would not know what to do. I don't think that Diane knew what to do either. Like, my God, that is, that is an intense thing to be left with. Like, good grief. She's a child herself. Right. She's a baby taking care of babies. It is so sad. Good God. So Marge took care of Eileen and Keith for as long as she could. But she was unable to keep the apartment on her own now that Diane's disappearance had put all the responsibility on Marge's shoulders until she eventually had to move back in with her parents. She called Diane's parents, Lori and Britta Warnos, hoping that they would take them in. 
and Lori was infuriated by this. But he took in Eileen and Keith and eventually adopted them in March of 1960. Oh my god. So the kids were really young at this point and some sources say she was almost or around four when this happened. Some people say four-year-olds can't remember anything that happened, but... Bullshit. You can bet your ass that there's a lot of people, myself included, that have memories from that young of an age. So you can already imagine how these poor kids must feel. Yeah, my, I couldn't. I genuinely couldn't. It's just sad. Like, this is a really crazy, crazy sad picture on, like, a number of levels. Yeah. Truly it is. It's gonna get worse. Oh, God. (laughs) Lori and Britta found out sometime later that Diane was living in Texas. She went all the way to Texas. Yeah, and left her kids. Yeah. Ah, it's so sad. But, you know, I try not to, like, think of Diane too harshly in this scenario. She is just a child. She doesn't know what she's doing. Who knows what she was feeling or thinking I mean, that's true. That's true. It's just, man, it's a lot. This is already in the beginning phases of this story. It's significantly complicated. Significantly. It's really, really complicated. And what happened to Leo Pittman, you might ask? Well, he would eventually be incarcerated in a prison for the rape and attempted murder of a seven-year-old girl. What? Mind you, Eileen never met her father. While she was being born, he was convicted of sex crimes against children, and he hung himself in his prison cell in 1969. Holy shit. Oh. Now, her grandfather Lori was a son of a bitch. (laughs) He was a son of a bitch. He would rape and beat Eileen and tell her things like, you should have never been born. You're worthless, and you're a mistake. Remember the speculation from earlier that Diane allegedly married Leo to escape Laurie? Yes. And now it's come back around full circle. Jesus, that... I'm speechless. I'm speechless a little bit. (laughs) So Eileen has now taken her mother's place in this household of abuse. My God. Eileen said that he would make her strip out of her clothes before beating her. And one instance in particular was witnessed by Michelle Chauvin, one of Eileen's childhood friends. Eileen and Michelle skipped school that day, but unfortunately, they had gotten caught when they showed up at Eileen's house. Michelle hadn't even made it inside. She was standing outside the screen door when Eileen went in. And the minute she came through the door, Lori had Eileen bent over a chair, took the thick black belt from his waist, and began beating Eileen. Like the minute she walked in. Yes. Jesus Christ. Michelle said this was no regular spanking. He was beating her. Oh my God. She said in her testimony that she was hypnotized by it, unable to look away. And Lori knew she was watching and continued to beat on Eileen for the next five minutes. Like he just didn't give a fuck. Didn't care. Oh my God. Oh my God. Lori also had a home-built sauna that he would use as punishment, and he would force Eileen inside, lock the door, and crank up the heat. Like, he was an evil bastard. This is so cruel. Like, this is some really bizarre, cruel, 
crazy shit. Yeah. Like to punish a child by putting them in a goddamn sauna mm-hmm. and making it as hot as it can get. What the fuck? Like, I don't think I've ever heard that something like that before. You know, we've covered some really heavy cases that have bits of child abuse and, you know, that's never easy and you can't compare, you know, individual experiences. But I think in all of my research and all of the terrible things that I've heard, I've never heard of a child being punished by being put into a fucking sauna. That is insane. That is truly insane. I know. Like, my jaw is on the floor. That one took me, too. It got to me really bad. Eileen spiraled into depression, believing herself to be worthless and unlovable. Oh, my God. By the age of nine, she figured out that she could use her body as a resource in trade for whatever she wanted. At nine years old. At nine years old. Oh, my. Take a shot. To you listening, take a shot every time I say, oh, my God, because that's literally all I can say. That's all I know to say. She began giving sexual favors for cigarettes, drugs, and food. And she was even doing this at school as well. Oh, my God. Was she doing this? I mean, not that it matters, I guess, because it's fucking awful either way. But was she exchanging things with, like, other students or older students? Or were there adults? Like, that? that's insane. I will get to the adult part in a minute. Oh, God. Okay. But she was like, hey, you know, I'll give you a blowjob for a pack of cigarettes or whatever. Oh, my God. Yeah. There are also allegations that she engaged in sexual activity with her own brother. What? Danny Colwell would later testify in court that he actually witnessed this sexual activity. Eileen had taken Danny's virginity And he testified naming Eileen, Keith, and their friend Mark, and they were inside their fort outside. She was naked, and yeah, you can imagine the rest. I'm not going to go into all that because she she was a minor at that time. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. At just 14 years old, Eileen became pregnant after being raped by a friend of her grandfather. Jesus, Fucking Christ. Lori was apparently inviting his friends over to rape Eileen. Yeah. Bitch, if y'all could only see my face right now. Like, I don't know what to do. This case does not get any easier. Like, don't get me wrong. I obviously know who Eileen Wernos is. I'm slightly familiar with her case. I know, you know, the things that she's, quote, famed for. Mm -hmm. But I really didn't know about her childhood that's not something I really dove into. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm basically in the seat with all of you listening. If this is a new case for you, I'm basically learning all this, you know, as you go. But my God, this is if that doesn't add a whole layer of just sadness, yeah. like deepening sadness, true sadness to this whole thing, then I don't know what the fuck does like yeah. this is. This is next level shit. Him inviting his friends over to rape Eileen is ironic as fuck because he became furious when he found out Eileen got pregnant and he forced her to give up her baby for adoption. Are you fucking kidding me? Like what an evil bastard. Like what in the fuck did you think would happen? Right. Putting this child through. Oh my. I'm just going to shut the fuck up. (laughs) I'm sorry. That... 
this is a lot. She gave birth at a home for unwed mothers, and the minute that baby was born, it was taken from her. This happened in March of 1971. A few months after the baby was born, she dropped out of school, and around that same time, Britta, Eileen's grandmother, died of liver failure. She had a few major complications with her liver due to her excessive drinking. She was a very heavy alcoholic, as you would probably imagine, having to put up with Lori. Goodness gracious. And I also want to mention, as a small side note, that I wasn't able to find anything that confirmed whether or not Britta was also abusive to Eileen. That's the question that I unfortunately don't have the answer to. Gotcha, gotcha. So she was kind of just there. And you would imagine that if Lori is doing these things to Eileen, that Britta was probably under her own form of oppression at that point. Yeah, there's, I believe, fully that that could be the case, that she was just another victim there with Eileen, you know? Britta's passing, again, infuriated Lori. And this he, motherfucker right here. I'm telling you, he's just infuriated about everything. Like, he gets very, very upset about Britta's passing and blames Eileen for her death. Of course he does. Which is just horrible. Like, he was already a bastard before Britta's death, but add grieving into that mix and it becomes Again, it's, unearthly. Next, it's like, next level. Yeah. It's truly next level. Like, this is fucking insane. He took all of his anger all of his emotion out on Eileen and he was so angry that he kicked Eileen out of the house she didn't have anywhere to go either she literally got put out on the streets and she's literally again a child a child some sources also state that Keith was also kicked out but he went in another direction unfortunately there's not much on Keith at all gotcha gotcha So, with nowhere to go, Eileen walked down the end of her street into the woods to live and try to survive. She relied on prostitution to make money for food and whatever else she needed. She slept in the woods, even in the snow and the cold, desperate to stay warm. My fucking God. Anytime a client would get a hotel room... That's where she would bathe and keep clean, which is a far cry better than having to use public bathrooms to wash up and keep clean. I literally couldn't imagine going through this now. I damn sure couldn't imagine going through it at like 13, 14, 15, any time really. Right. I could not imagine this. Again, fucking insane. Insane. The next year, 16-year-old Eileen hitchhiked over 1,000 miles west to Colorado. And this is where she experienced her first run-in with the law. This encounter would be the start of Eileen's criminal record, to say the very least. <laughs> <I'm so laughs> that just sent you, didn't it? It really did just how you <laughs> the way you like lifted your eyebrows. It was, it was such a meme. <laughs> that was such a meme. That was like a really good break in tension of the story. I needed that. <laughs> I needed that. My God. On May 27th, 1974, at just 18 years old, she was arrested in Jefferson County, Colorado for a DUI, disorderly conduct, and dangerous discharge of a 22 caliber firearm from a moving vehicle. 
She was later charged with failure to appear in court after she, you guessed it, didn't appear in court. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Two years later, Eileen hitchhiked over 2,000 miles to southeast Florida, where she met 69-year-old Yacht Club president Louis Gratz Fell. And apparently he Ooh, had... he sounds fancy. Yeah, he, he sounds real fancy. But apparently he had a comfortable living off of some railroad stocks. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. And they married that same year. And the announcement of their marriage was even featured in the local newspaper. Wow. This, this yacht... What was he? A yacht president captain person? <laughs> Whoever he is, he must be a pretty big deal. However, Eileen continuously escalated in her behavior, getting into confrontations at their local bar and eventually going to jail for assault. Oh, God. She also attacked Lewis, her husband, with his own cane. <laughs> what? Leading to him getting a restraining order and an annulment in just under nine weeks of marriage. So you're telling me that Eileen took this man's cane. And beat him with it. (laughs) Laughs out of anxiety. That's all this (laughs) is, is anxiety laughing. Oh my goodness, just the imagery. It's fucking insane. For like the fourth or fifth time this episode. Just Eileen just beating him with his cane. Right, fucking insane. God. Jesus fucking Christ. So she left and she went back to Michigan. And on July 14th, 1976, she was arrested in Antrim County, Michigan, and charged with assault and disturbing the peace for throwing a cue ball at a bartender's head. A fucking cue ball? Yeah. Damn, I bet that hurt like a motherfucker. I hope he ducked. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, that's intense. But during these proceedings, three days later, she finds out that her brother Keith died of esophageal cancer. What? Uh, Damn. Things are just not going well. Good life is just not existent here <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. And this is just wow. Life left the chat. Oh, well, and I'm Squidward. You haven't heard from me in a while, but I'm here to say that this is fucking insanely fucking sad. <laughs> it really truly is. <laughs> oh, God. I had to control myself for a minute. <laughs> I lost it. That just sent me. Squidward demanded the stage to share his <laughs> thoughts. So now that Squidward has entered the chat, we can get back to Eileen. <laughs> Thank you for putting up with me. <laughs> I love you. I love you. Eileen received $10,000 from Keith's life insurance. She saw this as an opportunity to have the money to get the things she wanted or needed. But she blew through all that money in two months. Damn. Sounds like she had fun. She spent it on hotel rooms, uh, guns, a car, and other things. Food, cigarettes, you know, what have you. She had the chance to start over completely with that amount of money. 
but unfortunately she didn't. Knowing that the money would eventually run out if she didn't make more, essentially wanting to maintain this new lifestyle, she was going to have to go out and get it. She was enjoying having money and having that freedom to do what she wanted, including armed robbery and a slew of other crimes as well. Jesus. Over the next decade, her crimes would continue to escalate. On May 20th, 1981, Eileen was arrested in Edgewater, Florida for an armed robbery at a convenience store where she stole $35 and two packs of cigarettes. I mean, why not? (laughs) I see, I see. So she was arrested and sentenced to prison on May 4th, 1982 and released on June 30th, 1983. She only spent a year in prison. Wow. There's some speculation that she wanted to get caught because this is a tactic that some homeless people resort to. They'll do something illegal to get sent to prison so they will have showers, food, a bed to sleep on. Eileen even said in an interview that she did really sloppy work. However, even with Eileen admitting to the crime, she never hid anything. She just didn't care to try to cover it up. Wow. I mean, it's sad. I I know I say that. If you've been listening for a while, you're very accustomed to me saying sad every 5.5 seconds. But, you know, this is sad. Yeah, because, I mean, she was bouncing around from hotel room to hotel room, sleeping out in the woods in between. There was even, like, when she was a kid, I if I remember right, they said that she would even find, like, this old car to sleep in that was, like, an abandoned old car. My goodness. Yeah, so she was, like, a drifter, basically, and not by choice. So on May 1st, 1984, Eileen was arrested again for attempting to pass forged checks at a bank in Key West, Florida. On November 30th, 1985, she was named as a suspect in the theft of a 38 caliber revolver and ammunition in Pasco County. Damn. So on January 4th, 1986, she was arrested in Miami and charged with grand theft auto, resisting arrest, and obstruction of justice for providing the police an ID that had the name Lori Grody on it. That's her aunt's name. Remember that because you're going to need that piece of information later. Gotcha, gotcha. She was trying to use her aunt's name instead of her own to keep herself out of trouble. So that way all the things that she'd been arrested for wouldn't show up. Miami police officers found a 38 caliber revolver and a box of ammunition in the stolen car she was driving. My God. So she was out there doing the damn thing. She was out there. She was 10 toes down. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you. On June 2nd, 1986, Volusia County, Florida deputy sheriffs detained Eileen for questioning After a male companion said he picked her up, she was prostituting, pulled a gun, and put it to his head, demanding $200. Oh, my God. Well, I bet that's not the surprise he was looking for. A surprise! (laughs) 
This is your not-so-happy ending. (laughs) I'm fucking crying. (laughs) Eileen was found to be carrying spare ammunition on her person, and a .22 caliber pistol was discovered under the passenger seat where she sat. There's no further information that I could find saying whether or not she was booked for this, but this was a thing that was brought up. Gotcha, gotcha. Shortly after that incident, though, Eileen would meet a woman named Tyria Moore at a Daytona gay bar called The Zodiac. Tyria, or Ty as she's called, worked as a hotel maid during the day, and she would head out to the gay bar when she wanted a drink or a good time. Gotcha, gotcha. So they hit it off immediately. Well, I wouldn't say immediately. It's portrayed in the movie Monster, which I'll talk about the actual movie later. But it's portrayed that, like, they had a very rocky, like, first conversation. Because if you think about it, Eileen is not used to having friends. She's not used to having anyone who loved or cared about her. Or even wanted to get to know her. Right, right. That is true. You know, I'm pretty sure they didn't hit it off, like, immediately, immediately. But they did hit it off. Gotcha, gotcha. They definitely did. And eventually, they fell for each other. Aww. Eileen had never experienced love again. No one was ever loving to her other than her mother who left her. My God. So, you know, she was just used to abuse. And the two women fell very quickly and they fell very hard for each other i'm about to be fucking crying in the club i know bitch it makes me want to go stand outside in the rain and cry i'm saying my god like eileen was willing to do anything for ty like she would take a bullet for this woman my god you don't find love like that a lot you really don't you really don't the last resort bar in daytona beach was eileen's favorite spot In fact, she was a regular there. Owner Al Bulling said that Ty would accompany Eileen. I'm just going to call Eileen Lee because that's what Ty called her. So Ty would accompany Lee to drink and play pool. When Ty wanted another drink, she would sit on the side of the pool table interrupting Lee and demanding that she wanted another beer. What? Ty was very demanding of Lee. If there was something Ty wanted, Lee would prostitute herself out to fund buying things for her. Because she didn't want Ty to leave her. So, Eileen literally did anything she could to make her happy. Oh my. Oh, my well, hello, it's me, Squidward again. <laughs> and I'm just here saying that I want to emphasize the last statement. I think we should all take a second to cry in the fucking club. <laughs> That's literally I'm on I'm on the I'm literally tearing up, bitch, like oh my god. On July 4th, 1987, a Daytona Beach police officer detained both Eileen and Ty at a bar for questioning. Eileen was accused of assault and battery with a beer bottle, and Ty stepped up defending Eileen. Then, on March 12, 1988, Eileen accused a Daytona Beach bus driver of assault. She claimed that he pushed her off the bus after some confrontation or argument that happened. 
and Ty was listed as a witness to this incident. So they were kind of working together as a team. Eileen could do whatever she wanted or needed to, and Ty would be right there to play witness and get Eileen off the hook. Gotcha. So this was like an arrangement they had, kind of? Or was it just like the natural dynamic? I think it was just the natural dynamic of things. Gotcha. Gotcha. Ty very much got swept up in how Eileen carried herself and that she wasn't afraid to do what needed to be done, so to speak. Gotcha. So I think that she, you know, because Ty herself came from a very good home. So I think that she was like a moth to the flame basically i can see that that's a good way to put it by november the next year eileen and ty moved in together with eileen supporting them with the money she was making from prostitution ty even quit her job as a hotel maid and was content to live off of eileen's earnings but the money ran short often because eileen wasn't making a whole lot of money from her sex work So she was making just enough money to get by. So the couple would travel from cheap hotel to cheap hotel. And one source said they would even have short periods of time again, staying in old barns or even in the woods between these hotels. Gotcha, gotcha. Wherever Eileen went, Ty followed. So of course, Eileen was happy anywhere she went because she had Ty. But the newfound happy couple vibe didn't keep Eileen from committing crimes. In fact, they only started to escalate even further. Eileen's crimes were everything but murder, but that would eventually change in 1989, where she would go on to murder seven men in a 12-month period. Eileen and Ty's living conditions, as meager as they were, became increasingly harder to maintain. Clearly, Eileen thought something had to change. So moving forward, I'm going to get into the victims. I gathered as much information as I could. Some of them have a lot of information. Some of them don't. Gotcha. But I also included the storyline of how the police managed to follow these murders. Gotcha, gotcha. So Richard Mallory was a 51-year-old from Clearwater, Florida, and he was an owner of an electronics repair shop. He was known to close up shop abruptly whenever he wanted, and he would disappear for a few days at a time on these drinking and sex binges. His only constants were alcohol, sex, and paranoia. Oh, God, that doesn't sound like a good combo at all. So paranoid. He changed the locks to his apartment eight times in three years. Okay. So, a little out there. He kept employees at his business only long enough to clear the backlog of work that piled up during one of his disappearances. And then he would let them go once his repair orders were caught up again. So, when he didn't show up to open his shop in early December of 1989, no one thought much of it. And there was no one close enough to him to notice that he was gone. Holy fuck. On December 1st, 1989, a Volusia County, Florida deputy sheriff discovered an abandoned vehicle. It was a 1977 Cadillac belonging to Richard Mallory. 
And until this point, no one that knew Richard thought anything was wrong. They thought he was just gone on one of his escapades, and he'd be back like usual. On December 13, 1989, several miles away in a wooded area, Jimmy Bonchi and James Davis were looking for scrap metal along a dirt road close to Interstate 95 in Volusia County. Instead of finding junk they could sell, they found a fully dressed body wrapped in carpet. Oh my God. Fingerprints were collected from this body and the DNA revealed that this body was in fact Richard Mallory. An autopsy revealed that Richard had been shot three times by a 22 caliber firearm. Two of the three bullets pierced his left lung and ultimately killed him. Jesus. Months of investigation into Richard Mallory's life, his lifestyle, and his shady acquaintances produced no leads. However, it was discovered that Richard had served 10 years in prison for a violent rape in another state. Initial suspicion revolved around a stripper who went by the name of Chastity, but the evidence, what little of it there was, didn't add up, so Chastity was off the hook and Richard Mallory's case went cold. On May 5th, 1990, the naked body of an unidentified man was found in Brooks County, Georgia. Oh, whoa, that's really close to here. Close to Interstate 75, just across the state line from Florida. The pathologist found two 22 caliber bullets in the remains, and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation had no leads as to the identity of this John Doe. A month later, on June 1st, another unidentified naked male body wearing only a baseball cap was found in the woods along Highway 19 in Citrus County, Florida, 40 miles north of Tampa. He had been shot six times in the chest. Jesus. Police initially suspected a man named Matthew Cocking. He was a surveyor who found the body. And Matthew was known to shout profanity and threats at anyone who questioned him about finding this body. He also carried a gun. However, Matthew was also cleared. The body was identified on June 7th as David Spears from Bradenton, Florida. David was a 43-year-old construction worker who was last seen on May 19th. His truck was found sometime shortly after on the side of Interstate 75 with the doors unlocked and the license plate was missing. Five days later, 30 miles south in Pasco County, Yet another naked body was found a few miles off of Interstate 75. This one was discovered on June 6th and was so badly decomposed that medical examiners were not able to obtain fingerprints and they couldn't even estimate a time of death. Holy shit. The medical examiner found nine small caliber bullets in his lower chest and upper abdomen and were badly damaged by decomposition. However, they were determined to have come from a 22 caliber firearm. Pasco County Detective Tom Muck had no luck at this point identifying his John Doe, which would later be determined to be 40-year-old rodeo worker named Charles Karskadon, but he heard about the case in Citrus County. So he's got this John Doe on hand, which is Charles. 
and he doesn't have any information on any leads whatsoever to get him identified. And he wasn't in the best shape, as you said. So. Right. So he heard about this case in Citrus County, and he notified the Citrus County Sheriff's investigator, Marvin Paget about the similarities, and they agreed to stay in touch. Searching further for leads, Tom called the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and was told of their own John Doe. Again, he noted similarities, but didn't feel he had enough information to put together an investigation. On July 4th, a car drove off the road and crashed on the side of State Route 315 near Orange Springs, Florida. Now I'm going to introduce you to Rhonda Bailey. And she was sitting on her porch at the time watching this accident happen. And she said that two women frantically got out of the car throwing beer cans into the woods and swearing at each other. It was Eileen and Ty. You know, they don't know this. I'm just telling you this was Eileen and Ty. Gotcha, gotcha. When Rhonda approached them, she asked them if she needed to call an ambulance. Ty said virtually nothing. And Eileen was bleeding from this accident. And she's begging Rhonda not to call the police, saying her father lived just up the road. Eileen and Ty got back inside the car, which now had a smashed windshield and other damage. They backed it up out of the brush and left. The crippled vehicle, though, wouldn't take them far. They abandoned it just down the road and began walking. Rhonda's description of the two women would later be used in making accurate police sketches that were released to the public to catch Eileen and Ty. Marion County Sheriff's deputies found the car Eileen and Ty left behind. It was a gray 1988 Pontiac Sunbird with four doors. All the glass in the front of the car was smashed. The windshield and both windows were just fucked. My God. There were bloodstains throughout the interior of the car and the license plate was missing. Much later down the line, when Eileen is apprehended, she is tied to this vehicle by a palm print on the interior door handle. Damn. A computer search based on the VIN number revealed that the car belonged to Peter Symes, who had disappeared on June 7th after leaving his home in Jupiter, Florida to visit relatives in New Jersey. Peter was a 65-year-old retired merchant seaman who devoted much of his time to a Christian outreach ministry. John Wisniewski of the Jupiter Police, who had been working the case since Peter was reported missing, sent out a nationwide teletype containing descriptions of the two women. John also sent a synopsis of the case and sketches of the women to the Florida Criminal Activity Bulletin. Unfortunately, all he could do now was wait and he was not optimistic about finding Peter alive. And he'd be correct, because Peter's body was never found. He was never found? He was never found. Oh my goodness. Meanwhile, 50-year-old Troy Burress left on his delivery route from Gilchrist Sausage early in the morning of July 30th. When he didn't return that afternoon, his manager, Joni Mae Thompson, started calling around and discovered Troy hadn't shown up at his last few delivery stops. Later that night, she and her husband went out looking for him. 
At 2 a.m., Troy's wife reported him missing. At 4 a.m., Marion County Sheriff's deputies found his truck on the shoulder of State Road 19, 20 miles east of Ocala, Florida. It was unlocked and the keys were missing. Troy was found five days later. There was a family out for a picnic in the Ocala National Forest that happened upon his body in a wooded clearing just off Highway 19, about eight miles from where his truck was found. I could not imagine having this fun, happy time at this family picnic and just happening upon a dead body. I couldn't imagine that either, like Jesus. So the Florida heat and humidity sped up the decomposition. They couldn't even identify his body. My goodness. But his wife identified his wedding ring. Troy Barrett had been found. He had been killed by two 22 caliber bullets, one to his chest and one to his back. Investigator John Tilley's initial suspect was a drifter named Curtis Michael Blankenship, who had been hitchhiking on Highway 19 the day of Troy's disappearance and was picked up close to the abandoned truck. It became evident as the investigation progressed that Curtis was not involved either. For the time being, John had no more suspects and, again, no more leads. Charles Dick Humphreys, a 56-year-old retired U.S. Air Force major, former state child abuse investigator, and former chief of police, never made it home from his last day of work at the Sumterville office of the Florida's Department of Health and Rehabilitative Services. That was a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Charles was a protective investigator specializing in abuse and injured children, and he was about to transfer to the department's Ocala office. He had just celebrated his 35th wedding anniversary on September 10th, and the next day, on September 11th, he disappeared. My God. Again, can't fucking imagine. On the evening of September 12th, Charles' fully clothed body was found in Marion County. The remains were covered by an electric blanket and a large amount of uprooted tall grass. He had been shot six times in the head and torso. Six 22 caliber bullets were recovered from his body. The seventh went through his wrist and was never found. God. His car was found in Swanee County later in September. About a month later, the nearly nude body of Walter Gino Antonio was found on a remote logging road in Dixie County on November 19, 1990. 62-year-old Antonio was a trucker, sometimes a security guard, and a member of the reserve police, which are just volunteer police officers to basically bolster the ranks during an emergency. Gotcha, gotcha. He was shot four times with a twenty-two. When he was found on November 19th, he'd been dead less than 24 hours. His car was found five days later across the state in Brevard County, Florida. In a confession much later on, Eileen said she was engaging in roadside prostitution when she was picked up by Antonio. She asked him if she could make some money, and he agreed. The two of them then proceeded to an isolated wooded area. And at this point, Eileen said Antonio pulled out a false police badge and said he could arrest her, but would not do so if she had sex with him for free. Oh, what the fuck? 
Eileen said she challenged him, contended he was not a law officer. He kept on making his demand for sex, and she then pulled a gun. She said a struggle ensued, during which she shot Antonio twice. According to her confession, Antonio called her a profane name, and she shot him two more times. Eileen then said she took some of Antonio's personal effects and his car and fled. So Captain Steve Benegar, I think his last name is. Mm -hmm. I'm very sorry if I butchered that. He was the commander of the Marion County Sheriff's Criminal Investigation Division in 1990. I'm just going to call this guy Captain Steve (laughs) because I'm weird. And Captain Captain Steve Steve knew about the crimes in Citrus and Pasco counties. He analyzed the similarities between the cases and was formulating a theory along with formulating a multi-agency task force with representatives from counties where the victims were found. In this theory, he reasoned that people wouldn't be stopping to pick up hitchhikers anymore, so it was safe to assume that the perpetrators had to be initially non-threatening to the victims, and he suspected a woman would do just that, specifically. Okay. He suspected the two women who had wrecked Peter Symes' car and walked away. Ah, that's how he honed in a little bit, basically. Yeah, I believe he didn't even have sketches at that time until they actually went to Rhonda and she confirmed, you know, this is what they look like. They drew up a sketch, you know, the process of which that would have to happen. Gotcha, yeah, I'm trying to... I'm keeping in mind, too, that a lot of these events that we're going through happened around the same time. Yeah. So I, I, I see the timeline. I see it. I just wanted to make sure. He turned to the press for help, and he wanted to get answers, but he had to find these two women first. In late November, a um, newspaper, I guess it is, called Reuters, ran a story about the killings, mentioning that the police were looking for these two women specifically. Papers across Florida picked up the story as well and ran it, along with police sketches of Eileen and Ty. It didn't take long at all for leads to start coming in, and by mid-December, the police had several tips involving the same two women. A man in Homosassa Springs said the two women rented a trailer from him a year earlier, and they went by the names Tyria Moore and Lee. A woman in Tampa said the women had worked at her motel south of Ocala. Their names were Tyria Moore and Susan Blahovic. An anonymous caller identified the women as Ty Moore and Lee Blahovic, who bought an RV in Homosassa Springs. According to the caller, Lee Blahovic was the dominant one, a truck stop prostitute, and both of them were lesbians. The hottest tip came from Port Orange near Daytona. Police there had been tracking the movements of Lee Blahovic and Tyria Moore and provided a detailed account of the couple's movements from the late September to mid-December. And this is what they reported. They stayed at the Fairview Motel in Harbor Oaks where Lee Blahovic registered as Cami Marsh Green. They spent some time living in a small apartment behind a restaurant near the Fairview, but then returned to the motel. In early December, the couple left the Fairview, and the woman who assumed the Blahovic 
green alias returned alone and stayed until December 10th. So they both left out and then only Lee came back. Gotcha. A quick computer check gave police driver's license and criminal record information on Tyria Moore, Susan Blahovic, and Cammie Marsh Green. Tyria had no real record because her breaking and entering charges against her in 1983 had been dropped. Susan Blahovic had one trespassing arrest while Cammie Green had no record at all. Additionally, the photographs on Susan Blahovic's license and Cammie Green's license did not match. The Cammie Green ID was the one that paid off the best. Volusia County officers checked pawn shops in the area and found that in Daytona, Cammie Marsh Green had pawned a camera and a radar detector and left the required thumbprint on the receipt. These items that were pawned belonged to Richard Mallory. Oh, shit. In Ormond Beach, Cammie Green pawned a set of tools that matched the description of those taken from David Spears' truck. Oh, shit. The thumbprint was the key. Jenny Ahern of the Automated Fingerprint Identification System found nothing on her computer search, so she traveled to Volusia County and began a manual hand search of fingerprint records there. And I mean, this takes hours because you're manually doing everything that a computer could do in seconds, right? Gotcha, gotcha. The print showed up on a weapons charge, an outstanding warrant, against Lori Grody. What? Remember I said that was her aunt's name. Yeah. And she was, oh, it just hit me. Light bulb. It just hit me. <laughs> oh, it just hit me. You literally said I would need that for later. And here yes. I am. Okay. Holy fuck. I just got it. You're with me now. Yes. I'm with you. I'm with you. The bloody palm print found in Peter Symes' sunbird matched Lori Grody's prints. All this information was sent to the National Crime Information Center, and responses came from Michigan, Colorado, and Florida. Lori Grody, Susan Blahovic, and Cammie Marsh Green were all aliases for Eileen Carol Warnos. Holy fucking shit. Yeah. That's the that's the mic drop moment right there. So they finally have actual names now. They know Tyria Moore and they know Eileen Carol Warnos. Oh my goodness. My I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> the real hunt for Eileen and Ty began on January 5th, 1991. Pairs of officers hit the streets hoping to track them down. There were two undercover cops in particular, Mike Joyner and Dick Martin, and they went by the codenames Bucket and Drums. Buckets and Drums. Bucket and Drums. What in the actual fuck kind of shit is that? Right? And they were portraying to be these drug dealers down from Georgia. So on the evening of January 8th, Joyner and Martin spotted her at Port Orange Pub. They meant for their takedown to develop gradually. They wanted an airtight case. Like, they needed this to go off perfectly or else everything could be fucked. Gotcha. But Port Orange police entered out of nowhere and took Eileen outside. Mike Joyner frantically phoned the command post at the Pirates Cove Motel 
And this is where all of the authorities from six different jurisdictions had come to work the case, all to this one hotel. This development wasn't because of a leak. These were just cops doing their job. So Bob Kelly of the Volusia County Sheriff's Office called the Port Orange Police Station and told them not to arrest Eileen Warnos under any circumstance. Wow. The word was relayed back to the cops in time and Eileen returned back inside the bar. So that was a close call. My God, this is crazy. Joyner and Martin struck up a conversation with Eileen and bought her a few beers. And she left the bar around 10 o'clock and they had offered her a ride, but she declined it. Two Florida Department of Law Enforcement officers were following Eileen as she walked down Ridgewood Avenue with their lights off. So they're being all sneaky and covert-like, right? Officers at the command post got the FDLE officers off the street and Eileen made it to her next destination. So, like, they are on her ass. They are watching every single move. Gotcha, gotcha. That's, oh, it is so intense. It's so intense. So she made it to her next destination, which was a biker bar called The Last Resort, which was her favorite spot. Joyner and Martin met her there for a while. They drank more beers and they were able to shoot the shit with Eileen. They were waiting for her to slip up and say something or to get her isolated enough that they could take her down. Gotcha, gotcha. And I'm guessing that Eileen wasn't in the right mind to be like, I just left somewhere and came to somewhere else and you guys are here too? Like... Right, that's a little, a little suspicious. It's suspicious. They left just after midnight, but Eileen didn't leave at all. She spent the night sleeping on an old car seat in the last resort. So she actually slept inside the bar as it was closed. Gotcha. The following afternoon, Joyner and Martin were back at the last resort as Bucket and Drums again, talking Eileen up and wearing transmitters that kept the police updated on everything that went on. They planned on taking Eileen down later that night but the last resort was gearing up for a barbecue and bikers would start pouring in at any second. So the decision was made at the command post to go ahead with the arrest. So Joyner and Martin asked Eileen if she'd like to get cleaned up at their motel room. She accepted their offer this time and left the bar with them. And outside on the steps, Larry Horzeppa of the Marion County Sheriff's Office approached Eileen and told her She was being arrested on the outstanding warrant for Lori Grody. They didn't make any mention of the murders, and no announcement was made to the media that a suspect had been arrested. Their caution was paramount, though, because they had no murder weapon and no Tyria Moore. Get this shit. Eileen Warnos was arrested on my birthday. Oh, shit, really? She was arrested January 9th, 1991. I was five years old at the time. So on your fifth birthday, Eileen Warnos got arrested. Yes. Holy shit. That's wild to think about. I come from another time. (laughs) (laughs) Holy fuck. So, Tyria Moore was located on January 10th, the next day, and she was living with her sister in Piston, 
Pitts. This is so hard to say. I'm sorry, Pennsylvania, but Pittston. Is that how you say it? P-I-T-T-S-T-O-N. Pittston. I don't know, but it's such a weird name for a place. But yeah, Pittston. Gotcha, gotcha. I guess that's how you say it. Anyway. (laughs) Moving on. Moving on. Jerry Thompson of Citrus County and Bruce Munster of Marion County flew to Scranton, Pennsylvania to interview Ty. And Ty wasn't being charged with anything, but she was read her rights. Bruce Munster made sure she knew what perjury was, swore her in, and sat back as she gave her statement. Ty began giving her version of events on record, and she stated she knew about the murders since Eileen had come home with Richard Mallory's Cadillac. Lee had openly confessed that she had killed a man that day, but Ty told her not to say anything else. Quote, I told her I didn't want to hear about it. And then anytime she would come home after that and say certain things, telling me about where she got something, I'd say I don't want to hear it. End quote. Oh my God. She admitted that she had her suspicions, but she wanted to know as little as possible about what Lee was doing. She reasoned that the more she knew, the more compelled she would feel to report Lee to the authorities. She didn't want to do that. She also said, quote, I was just scared. And she always said she'd never hurt me, but then you can't believe her. So I don't know what she would have done. Wow. Well, you know, you weren't too worried about what she would have done while you were with her. I was about to say, I didn't know if I wanted to interject that. But I was like, where were these grievances when she was funding everything that you wanted to do? Right. You know, I'm not trying to... I mean, I don't know what the fuck I would do in this situation. Like, I can't, you know, necessarily point and blame too much. But it just seems a little... Wow. It's like, oh, I love you. But you're prostituting out on the street, which is dangerous, to fund shit that I want. And, yeah, you may murder people, but at least I'm getting what I want. Just don't tell me about it. Right. Which is, I I don't know. It's like I said way, way earlier in this, in this episode. It's really complicated. Right. And then when the heat gets dialed up as far as, you know, oh, well, she's still murdering people. When the heat gets dialed up, all of a sudden, you're back with family. Yeah, you And Eileen's out. left to deal with it herself. Yeah, I mean, it's, ooh, this is a complicated one. It right. for sure really is. The next day... Tyria Moore accompanied Munster and Thompson back to Florida to assist the investigation. A confession would make the case against Eileen virtually airtight. So on the flight to Florida, Munster and Thompson explained their plan for getting a confession out of Eileen. They would put Ty in a Daytona motel and have her make contact with Lee in jail, saying she had received some money from her mother and she came down to get the rest of her things, or at least that's the that's the story. Gotcha. Their phone conversations would be taped, and Ty was to tell Eileen that authorities had been questioning her family and that she thought the Florida murders would be mistakenly pinned on her. They hoped that, out of loyalty to Tyra, that Eileen would confess. This is so fucked. The very first call from Eileen came on January 14th, 
She was still under the impression that she was only in jail for the Lori Grody weapons violation. When Ty brought up her suspicions, the suspicions that they wanted her to bring up, you know, oh, they're coming after me, they're questioning my family. Eileen reassured her, I'm only here for that concealed weapons charge in 86 and a traffic ticket. And I tell you what, man, I read the newspaper and I wasn't one of those little suspects. Oh. That's that's what Eileen said over the phone. She was aware that the jailhouse phone was monitored and she made every effort to speak of the crimes in code words and to construct an alibi. Quote, I think somebody at work where you worked at said something that it looked like us. She even said, and it isn't us, see? It's a case of mistaken identity. Wow. For three days, the calls continued. Tyria became more insistent that the police were after her, and it became clear that Eileen knew what was expected of her. She even voiced suspicion that Ty was not alone, that someone was there taping their conversations. This is a clip of what was said over the phone. I'll play that for you now. Hello? Hi? Yes. Yes. Hi. Hey. I don't know what the hell is going on, Lee. They've called. They've been up to my parents again. They've got my sister now asking her questions. I don't know what the hell is going on. Huh. What are they asking your sister questions for? I don't know. Hmm. Lee, they're, right. they're coming after me. I know they are. No, they're not. They're They've got to. They're, why are they asking so many questions then? Honey, listen, listen, listen. Do what you gotta do, okay? I'm gonna have to because I'm like gonna go to jail for something that you did. This isn't fair. My family is a nervous wreck up there. My mom has been calling me all the time. She doesn't know what the hell's going on. Okay. Do what you gotta do, okay? Alrighty. Uh, what? I'm not gonna let you go to jail. Okay? I don't know whether I should keep on living or if I should... No, Ty, Ty, listen. Uh, what if they don't believe me? Ty, listen. What? I'm not going to let you go to jail or anything. Listen, if I have to confess, I will. Okay. That literally almost made me cry. Yeah, and Like, I'm still sitting here feeling like... Like, I feel the tears behind my eyes. I feel it. And when they played this in court in front of Eileen... Eileen also got very emotional and started crying during this point. Oh, my God. Just hearing her say, like, baby, listen, I'm not going to let you go to jail like that just fucking broke me. Oh, my God. Right after this, on the morning of January 16th, Eileen confessed. Oh, my God. But in this confession... Eileen would come back to two main points again and again. She confessed to Larry Horzeppa and Bruce Munster. One, she made it very clear that Ty wasn't involved in any of the murders. And she also added that nothing was her fault either, not the murders and not any circumstances that led her down this path in life. Number two, she claimed all the killings were done in self-defense. She stated that each victim had either assaulted her, threatened her, or raped her. 
By... Or they were about to rape her. <sighs> Unfortunately, her story seemed to develop as she told it. When she thought she said something incriminating, she would back up and retell that part, changing details to suit her overall narrative. She claimed she'd been raped several times in the past few years and have had enough. And when each of her victims became aggressive, she killed them out of fear. Now, I will get into some more information about prostitution and the likelihood of rape. I do cover that as well. But moving on for right now, Michael O'Neill, who is a public defender from the Volusia County Public Defender's Office, he was assigned to her case. And he advised Eileen several times to stop talking. And finally, he got so frustrated with her, he said, Do you realize these guys are cops? Wow. Yeah. All and, right. And Eileen answered back to him and said, I know. And they wanted to hang me. And that's cool because maybe, man, I deserve it. I just want to get this over with. End quote. Holy shit. So a scourge of book and movie offers poured in to detectives, to relatives, to Ty, and even Eileen herself. And Eileen seemed to think she would make millions from her story. But she didn't realize that Florida had a law against criminals profiting. From their crimes. Right. Wow. She was all over the local and national media. She felt famous and she continued to talk about the crimes with anyone who would listen, including Volusia County jail employees. With each retelling, she refined her story, making her cast herself in a better light every time. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to get into something a little weird to me, at least. Okay. There was a connection that Eileen made. And there was this woman named Arlene Prail, and she was a 44-year-old who ran a horse breeding and boarding facility near Ocala. She saw Eileen's picture in a newspaper and wrote her a letter explaining who she was, that she was a born-again Christian, and quote, You're going to think I'm crazy, but Jesus told me to write to you. What? Okay. She provided her home telephone number, and on January 30th, Eileen called her from the prison for the first time. Almost immediately, Arlene became her ardent defender and helped Eileen with anything she needed. So Arlene advised Eileen that her public defenders were trying to profit from her story, as was everyone else. And there's evidence that... That Volusia County Sheriff deputies negotiated contracts for book and movie deals about Lee's case before she was even arrested. What? Deputies arranged with Ty to set Lee up, as we know. And though Ty was implicated in several of the killings, she was never charged. Oh my god. Officer Brian Jarvis... Initially, the chief investigator on this case was removed when he questioned the conduct of his colleagues that were assigned. He later reported vandalism to his house, theft of his records on the case, and threats against him and his family. Wow. So just for speaking up and being like, you know, dude, this is not right. 
you know, his whole world is basically almost being turned upside down. Very scary, very chilling, yet very true foreshadowing of things that actually happen in society. Right. Her life as a highway prostitute and the killings have been chronicled in three books, two television movies, and a production by the San Francisco Opera. So there were definitely people profiting off of Eileen's story, even Arlene. Wow. Eileen asked for new attorneys, and the request was granted. Arlene spoke with reporters from Vanity Fair. Holy fucking shit. Right. And she was describing her relationship to Eileen. Ugh, this is going to make you cringe, but it was, quote, a soul binding. We're like Jonathan and David in the Bible. It's as though part of me is trapped in jail with her. We've always known what the other is feeling and thinking. I just wish I was Houdini. I would get her out of there. If there was a way, I would do it, and we could go and be vagabonds together. End quote. Oh my goodness. To another reporter, she said, quote, If the world could know the real Eileen Warnos, there's not a jury that would convict her. End quote. Throughout 1991, Arlene Prale appeared on talk shows and in tabloids talking to anyone who would listen about what she perceived was Eileen's good nature. She arranged interviews for Eileen with reporters she thought would be sympathetic, and in this newfound forum that Eileen had, she continued to tell and embellish her story. Eileen had never had a voice before in her life, and now all of a sudden everyone's wanting to listen to what she has to say. Right, right. It's wild. So both Eileen and Arlene emphasized Eileen's troubled and terrific upbringing, but they both leveled accusations of corruption and complicity at anyone. The agents proffering, the book and movie deals, the detectives, the attorneys, and especially Ty. On November 22, 1991, Arlene and her husband legally adopted Eileen Warnos. What? Arlene said God told her to. Wow. Oh, okay. Eileen's attorneys engineered a plea bargain in which Eileen agreed. This plea bargain means that she would have to plead to six charges and receive six consecutive life terms. But on January 14th, 1992, Eileen Warnos went to trial for the murder of Richard Mallory. The evidence and the witnesses against her were severely damaging. And there was an account of a Dr. Arthur Botting, and he was the medical examiner who had autopsied Richard Mallory's body. He stated that Richard had taken between 10 and 20 agonizing minutes to die. Oh, wow. Ty testified that after killing Richard... Eileen did not seem overly upset, nervous, or drunk when she told her about the killings. Ty actually sat on the stand against Eileen. My God, my God. Twelve men testified on the stand, telling their encounters with her along Florida's highways over the years, which I'm surprised they managed to find these people. I don't know if they came forward or what, but you know you're fucked when they bring out people you thought you'd never see again. Right, right. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> what an awkward situation. You know, these are men that I guess apparently had 
bartered sexual favors from her and picked her up and done this and that. Like, where did they find these people? That is absolutely insane. So Florida has a law known as the Williams Rule that allows evidence related to other crimes to be admitted if it helps to show a pattern. And because of the Williams Rule, information regarding the other killings was presented to the jury. Eileen's claim of killing in self-defense would have been a lot more believable had the jury only known about Richard Mallory's murder. But now, with the jury made aware of all the murders, getting self-defense seemed improbable. Right. I could see that. And that's a very understated improbable. (laughs) After her videotaped confession was played, the self-defense claim completely fell apart. On tape, Eileen appeared confident and not at all upset by the story she was telling. She made easy conversation with her interrogators and repeatedly told her public defender to be quiet. Wow. You know, her public defender is like, you need to stop talking. You need to stop talking. And she's like, stop. Right. Yeah. So she was on video captured on tape saying, quote, I took a life. I am willing to give up my life because I killed people. I deserve to die. End quote. Holy fuck like when i say she hid nothing like she hid nothing gotcha gotcha trisha jenkins one of eileen's public defenders did not want her to testify and even advised her numerous times against it but eileen insisted on telling her story and by now her story of richard mallory's killing was a night and day difference from the one she gave in her confession according to eileen Richard Mallory raped her, sodomized her, and tortured her, so she shot him in self-defense. This next clip is Eileen's testimony in court about this alleged attack. And he said, it doesn't matter to me. Your body body will still be warm for my huge cock. And... He said, he was choking me and I was holding it like this. And he said, do you want to die, slut? And I just nodded no. And then he said, are you going to listen to everything I've got to say? Have you do? And I just nodded yes. Then what happened? Takes the visine. And he lifts up my legs. And he puts what turns out to be rubbing alcohol in the visine bottle and he sticks some up my rectum area and that really hurt really bad because he tore me up for a while and put some in my vagina which really hurt bad And then he walked around to back to driver's seat side and he pulled my nose open like this. Pulled them open and he squirt rubbing alcohol down my nose. And he said, I'm saving your eyes for the grand finale. And he put the visine back on the dash and I spit in his face. And he said, you're a dead bitch, you're dead. And he's wiping his eyes. And I laid down real quick and I grabbed my bag 
and he was starting to come for, for me when I grabbed my bag and threw, whipped my pistol out toward him. And he was coming toward me with his right arm, I believe, and I shot immediately, and I think I shot twice, as fast as I could. Jesus Christ, this case just takes you into some wild fucking places. Yeah. Like, truly, it does. And it's it's like, there is this thing about, you know, I believe that this rape occurred. You know, we know what kind of character that Richard Mallory was. Right, right. And the charges that he had against him. Because... What she's saying is, like, oddly specific for it to be a lie or or an overly embellished story. And especially considering that it correlates with known things that he was charged for. Right. So that, yeah, I mean, I can say that I agree with you. there's no way that she was going to know that he was already previously charged with rape. Right, You know, so how would she know that? So I think that that is just something that... You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, because she confessed, then that's that's the end all be all. She knew exactly what she was doing. But to sit and say that, you know, this rape was a lie. She changes her story because in her confession, she's like, yes, I killed these people and I deserve to die. But, you know, no one is taking into account the attack on her. And during cross-examination, prosecutor John Tanner obliterated any shred of credibility that she may have had. And he felt like he was bringing up, you know, bringing light to whatever lies that she was spinning. I'm sure there were some inconsistencies. And she ended up becoming very agitated and angry, which is understandable because if you're telling someone you're telling a room full of people that you were raped and instead it's like oh well you know this is a lie and that's a lie and this is an inconsistency like you know we get that these people have jobs to do but at what point is anyone going to believe eileen and what she said happened exactly they're they're just looking at the number it doesn't really seem like she had a fair chance Right, which I will get into very, very soon. Her attorneys repeatedly advised her not to answer questions, and as the questions carried on, Eileen would invoke her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination 25 times. Damn. Yeah, so she invoked her Fifth Amendment a lot, and she was the defense's only witness And when she left the stand, there was not much doubt about how her trial was going to go. On January 27th, Judge Uriel Blount charged the jury and the deliberation was completed in less than two hours. Like, they came to this decision rather quickly and they found Eileen Warnos guilty of first-degree murder. And as they filed out of the courtroom, she exploded with rage, shouting, I'm innocent. I was raped. I hope you get raped, scumbags of America. Oh my. Woo! When she exited the courtroom and was being escorted to the patrol car, she told reporters that she was raped and that there was evidence on Richard Mallory's steering wheel. She yelled out to the reporters as she stood there in handcuffs, saying that the steering wheel 
had evidence to show that she was tied up to that steering wheel. My God. That would prove her claims. She yelled out again and again that the system was trying to cover it up. The next day, the penalty phase of her trial was beginning, but the jurors couldn't get Eileen's outburst out of their minds. Because let's be real, she's scary as fuck when she's mad. Right, oh, right, you'll right. You'll see here in a minute. I'm going to play a clip for you, but you'll see. It's fucking terrifying, and when you're watching it, it's even more terrifying. But expert witnesses for the defense testified that Eileen was mentally ill and that she suffered from borderline personality disorder and that her upbringing had stunted and ruined her. Jenkins referred to her client as a damaged primitive child as she pleaded with the jury to spare Eileen. Like, what? Yeah. Like trying to paint her, oh, she's insane. She's mentally ill. Trying to say that she's crazy. My God. But the jurors didn't forget and forgive when it came to Eileen. Like the Eileen that they came to know during the trial. They had their mindset on who she was, and with a unanimous verdict, they recommended that Judge Blount sentence her to death. And he did just that on January 31st. My fucking God. And this is where many feel that Eileen was misrepresented, as we were saying earlier. Like, trial attorneys first failed to interview and later failed to call several witnesses who have volunteered information which corroborated Eileen's testimony. Her trial attorneys delayed in researching evidence of Richard Mallory's history of violence against women. Yeah, it's almost like none of that was a priority. At all. The judge then ruled it inadmissible because it was introduced too late. What? Yeah. Private attorney Stephen Glasser encouraged her to plead no contest to five murder charges without securing a sentencing offer or informing her of all her options. Alrighty. Yeah, so every single option that she had available to her wasn't given to her. And on March 31st, she pleaded no contest to the murders of Dick Humphreys, Troy Burress, and David Spears, saying she wanted to, quote, get right with God. In another statement to the court, she said, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me, as I've told you, but these others did not. They only began to start to. Holy. I feel like that's all I'm saying, but my God. It's a lot. So, I have two upcoming clips for you, and this clip is of Eileen reading a part of, I want to call it an impact statement, but it's more of like an open apology. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's this clip. I have made peace with my Lord and I have asked forgiveness. I am sorry that my acts of self-defense ended up in court like this, but I take full responsibility for my actions. It was them or me. I am sorry for all the pain that my actions have caused. I am prepared to die if you say it is necessary. So she ended her monologue by turning to Assistant State Attorney Rick Ridgway and hissed, I hope your wife and children get raped in the ass. Damn. And you'll you'll hear that during her outburst, but on May 15th, Judge Thomas Sawaya handed her three more death sentences. The following clip 
is the audio of her reaction in which you'll hear her say that. Gotcha. I sent it to you in case number 91-463 to death for the murder of Troy Burris. Case number 91-304. I sent it to you to death for the murder of Charles Humphreys. Case number 91-112, Citrus County case number. I sent it to you to death for the murder of David Spears. Thank you. And uh, probably see, uh, I'll be up in heaven while y'all are rotting in hell. Okay, there will be an automatic appeal. You have the right to an appeal. Mr. Glazer, is that going to be handled by you May or the public defender? your wife and defender? kids uh, get raped. I would ask that uh, you would appoint right the public the defender's ass. office. Okay, I'll, I'll appoint the public defender's office uh, to handle the appeal. There's one other thing that I want to say that I think needs to be said. I know I was raped, and you weren't nothing but a bunch of scum. Therefore, these proceedings are now Putting completed. Putting somebody who was raped to death? Fucker! Yeah. 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 The goosebumps that I have right now. Oh my god, I... That's all I've said this whole episode, is my god, oh my god, and that's sad. Because I don't know what else to say, but that definitely just gave me like crazy chills yeah. like crazy chills many believe that eileen didn't receive a fair trial and lee has been tried only once only once only once for the killing of richard but she's been convicted of six murders she went to trial over richard mallory mm-hmm. and walked away six death sentences my that is i my brain. Fuck my brain. In her videotaped confession, which was the key evidence used by the prosecution in her trial, Lee said more than 60 times that she acted in self-defense. None of these references was included in the version of that tape, which was shown to the jury. Convenient. Convenient. And according to the prosecution, they portrayed Lee as a serial killer. And that's what won them the death penalty. Lee does not fit the profile of a serial killer. No serial all. killer has ever claimed they had killed in self-defense. Serial killers stalk their victims. They do not kill in moments of fear. Right. And. I agree with you. There's also a belief that sexism, anti-lesbian, and anti-prostitute prejudice were used to condemn Lee to death. I could see that too, because what was it? And I hate to jump and say this, but uh, Edmund Kemper, I reference him all the time. Mm -hmm. He killed seven, eight people fucking horrifically. He didn't get put to death. Right. Even though I do think in Kemper's case, if I can remember correctly, I think there was a monitorium on the death penalty in California at the time that he was sentenced. Mm -hmm. But like still, the fact that you compare the two and i'm i'm doing this all semi metaphorically you obviously can't really super compare but in a way you can edmund kemper is fucking still in prison yeah but they put her to death right six times right and i don't know i mean that's just something to point out i guess you all can grasp the point that i'm making but the anti lesbian and the the sexism comes in where the prosecutors made repeated references to Eileen's romantic relationships with women. Why does that fucking matter? 
Right. Why did they have to bring it up? Why does it matter? That does not matter in the scheme of anything. But like 80% of women on death row in Florida are lesbians. And although Eileen does not consider herself a lesbian, society's fear and hatred of lesbians was used against her because this was in the 90s. Where calling someone gay was an insult, you know? So, yeah, I mean, well, homophobia has always existed. It still very much exists today. Right. So, I mean, that's a valid point that I see. People have trouble believing that a prostitute would need to kill six times in self-defense. But prostitutes are much more likely to be raped than women in other jobs. Right. One study of a group of prostitutes said that they had been raped an average of 33 times a year. My God. Right. Oh, my God. That's a big mic drop moment. No shit. I literally almost did quite literally just throw this mic. Right. Yet a Los Angeles store owner killed five men in four different armed robbery attempts, and this man was never charged with any crime whatsoever. And tens of thousands of women are in prison in the U.S. for killing men who abuse them. A study by the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence found that men who kill their wives or girlfriends serve an average of two to six years in prison, while women who kill their male partners serve an average of 15 years to death. Which I believe every bit of that, and I think it's fucking absurd. Like, you look at the society that we live in today and how victim blaming is very much a thing. Right. Men are not punished or given penalty for abusing or killing or brutalizing their partners. But these women that are brutalized, they're somehow punished right, for what happened to them versus, you know, the motherfucker that did it being held accountable. That's not a thing. And that's fucking sad. But that's a very real, very common outlook that society has and it's fucked up so i mean i have no trouble seeing the connection in that even ted bundy who killed more than 30 women in florida had offers from several well-known private criminal attorneys to defend him pro bono and at one time his defense team included five public defenders and a volunteer consultant on jury selection lee's supporters have been unable to find any such assistance for her she has had to rely on overworked public defenders. Wow, convenient. Here is another clip of Eileen talking about the political side of this. Okay. I'm going to play that for you now. Because I'm tired of this re-election jazz. They're just trying to get promotional ladder climbing, political prestige from this. And I'm sick and tired of this. I'll probably get three more death row sentences. And then I got to go to Pasco and Dixon for two more de uh, death row. How many times you got to kill me? You know, I mean, this is this is bullshit. Outside the court, Eileen yelled out to the press that one death sentence was enough. And the court was dragging things out for profit. She said, how many times do you have to kill me? As yeah, you heard. that shit gave me chills. When Nick Broomfield met Eileen... She had four death sentences already. This is a clip from when he first interviewed Eileen in 1992. And I'm going to play that for you now. Hi, how you doing? This is Eileen. When I first interviewed her in 1992, 
for my original film, The Selling of a Serial Killer. I say it's this. The principle is self-defense. They say it's the number. I say it's the principle. The heck with what... It, it, it has nothing to do with the number killed. It's the principle. But they're saying, if there's a number, no. Self-defense is self-defense no matter how many times it is. I don't care if it's a hundred times. I was very, I never provoked those guys. I never provoked them. I never showed any provocations whatsoever. It was very nice, very decent, very clean, very ladylike. I didn't even swear in front of my clients. And a lot of my clients, I talk about Jesus and I talk political. Both mixed together and we never argued. Well, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, because I mean, if you're looking at the principle I'm defending myself. It doesn't matter, like she said, a hundred times. If I have to defend myself, I'm going to defend myself. Yeah, if I get attacked a hundred times, then I'm going to defend myself a hundred times. And with those numbers showing the average that prostitutes are raped 33 times a year with that average from that study. Again, it doesn't matter if someone tried to rape you a hundred times. I will always defend myself. Right, right, as you should. And you have every right to. In June, she pled guilty to the murder of Charles Karskadon, and in November, she received her fifth death sentence. This is ridiculous. Right. Like, this is ridiculous. In early February of 1993, she was sentenced to die after pleading guilty to the murder of Walter Gino Antonio. No charges were brought for the murder of Peter Symes because there was never a body. Yeah, they I remember never you. Found him. Yeah, they never found him, which God. So they were sure she murdered Peter, but they had no proof to make it stick. Gotcha. For a while, there was speculation that Eileen would get a new trial for the murder of Richard Mallory. He served 10 years in prison for sexual violence, and attorneys felt that the jury would have seen Eileen's case from a different angle had they known. No there was kidding. Never a new trial. There was never a new trial. God. Nothing was offered to her. Eileen, while awaiting her death sentence to be carried out, dropped all of her appeals and complained that state prison guards were trying to harass her to death and drive her to suicide. In a 25 page handwritten court filing, she accused the prison staff of tainting her food spitting on it and serving her potatoes cooked in dirt her attorney said she also complained her meals arrived with urine whoa right the state promised in court to investigate but a corrections department spokesman later rejected the allegations of course eileen sat down with nick broomfield as she had a few times before because she felt she had to get right with God before she went into the execution chamber. She wanted her story out there, so Nick was called. Nick Broomfield was involved in the documentary The Selling of a Serial Killer in 1993, showing how people surrounding the case were selling their stories for profit, even Dr. Legal, that represented Eileen in court. That documentary will be added to the show notes, because there's... A lot of information in there. I I got a ton of information out of it. And um, there was even something that was brought up in trial about 
Dr. Legal going on a road trip to go see Eileen, I guess, in prison and smoke like seven joints on the way there. All right. And it was on the documentary. Okay. Right. So it was just like, I mean, you and I would be like, okay, great, you know, legalize it. But, you know, this was during a time where like, you know. It was different. Right. There was this huge stigma on it. Anyway, Nick and Eileen sat down together. And here, she would openly say that she killed these men in cold blood. And here's a rather long clip of Eileen from that meeting. But listen to what she's saying. And even though it may seem really out there, you just have to pay attention to what she's saying. Because even though she may sound crazy to us saying these things, but what is being done to her on the other side? That we don't know about. That we don't know about to make her seem crazy. Does that... Yes, it absolutely yeah. makes sense. So, I'm going to play that clip for you now. How you're going to be, you know, at 9.30 tomorrow morning. Are you prepared? I'm prepared. I'm all right. I'm all right with it. And how? I'm all right with it, but like I said, remember and tell, let them know that I know that the cops knew who I was after Richard Mallory died. I left prints everywhere, and they covered it up. And let me kill the rest of those guys to turn me into a serial killer. I know they did, because I was no professional serial killer or anything. I don't know, murderer or whatever you want to call it, you know. I wasn't professional at so, what I was doing. Eileen, how... I did how, some sloppy work, you know, and I left How prints. have you prepared yourself for tomorrow morning? How, I'm all right with it. Hey, I'm ready to go. Hey, I was tortured at BCI. They had they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Sonic. And pressure. every time I was trying to write something, I they and I I think they had some kind of eye in the cell. I'm not sure, but every time I started writing something, it went up higher. So I'm thinking that probably had the TV rigged. The TV or the mirror, something was rigged. They got a huge satellite on the compound. After they put the huge satellite on the compound, it could have been either rigged to the TV set or the mirror or something, because the electrician, when he put the mirror on the wall, he said, doesn't that look like a computer? The back of it, and he stuck it to the wall. And do you think, what, did that affect your mind, do you think? Huh? Did that affect your mind in some way, the sonic? It was crushing my head, and they were using sonic pressure continually. Then when I had three meetings with Miss Villacorda on it, every meeting I had, she increased the pressure of the volume of the calm, increased the harassment on the floor, increased the uh, trays being inedible, just increased every bit of my complaints and trashed all grievances. They're trying to make it look like I was crazy at all times, rig up the room with torture. If I said anything about their whole, I think their whole plan was to try to make it look like I was totally crazy. And so nobody would believe anything I had to say about anything. And then drive me there if they could. I suffered so bad. I was really struggling to survive. Had a lot of trays that were attempted murder and everything. I had to wash all my food off. And then one day I didn't wash my food off and I was sick for three weeks, almost died. But you're okay now. 
I'm okay. I'm okay. God is going to be there. Jesus Christ is going to be there. All the angels and everything. And, you know, whatever, whatever's on the beyond, I think it's going to be more like Star Trek beaming me up into a space vehicle, man. Then I move on, recolonize to another planet or whatever. But it's whatever's the beyond, I know it's going to be good because I didn't do anything as wrong as they said. I did the right thing. And I saved a lot of people's butts from getting hurt and raped and killed, too. So are you saying that you killed in self-defense or in, in cold blood? What do you... What do you because you, you've changed your story. I'm just trying to What understand. are you talking about? Change story on what? No, about whether it was self-defense or not. I'm not going to say it. You know, I'm not going to get in depth about my cases, Nick. I'm on my way to the chamber. Nothing's stopping it. You can believe it or you don't have to believe it. That's up to you, man. Put a big question mark on your film. Just before we came here, we met with your, with your mother, Diane. You met with my brother and Diane? Your, I could your give mother. You. Oh, my, my mother, Diane, let me tell you something. She plopped me out of her belly, left me with my grandparents, and we never knew her. So tell that damn whore I could give a fuck if she even had me. She had me and left to Texas. And my mom, my dad, Barry, Keith, Lori, all of us never saw her ever again, except at funerals. My mom's funeral, my dad's funeral, and my brother's funeral. And if she's at mine, I'd be spitting on her. I care less. I don't give a damn about that whore. Well, she, she asked I don't you, know her. I never she, even knew her. She asked you for your forgiveness. She can go to hell. She doesn't have any of my forgiveness. I don't, know, I don't even know her. Don't even want to know her. My only interview concerns are about cops letting me kill. So if you don't ask me about that, I'm going to cut this interview. Ask me about the cops. What do you, I mean, what more is that to, what more is that to say about the cops? <laughs> what, what more do you want to say about the cops? A lot of stuff. Did you know that they were surveilling me before I killed? And then I knew it? And that it was covered up? Did you know there was helicopters dropping down from the sky, deputy sheriff with decoys picking me up four or five months before my arrest? It was covered up. But nonetheless... Nobody ever asked me these the questions. Whether the cops were following you or not, Eileen. Oh, whether the cops were following me okay. or not, Eileen, okay, what? Let's say, let's say the cops were following you. Yeah. Let's say they were following uh -huh. you and they did everything that you're, you're saying they did. Uh-huh. Nonetheless, yeah. you killed seven men. Yes, you and I'm did. asking you, what got you to kill the seven And I'm men? telling you because the cops let me keep killing them, Nick. Don't yeah, you not, get it? Not everybody is killing seven people. So there must have been something in you that was getting you to oh, do you that. Oh, you are lost, Nick. So I was a hitchhiking hooker. Right. Running into trouble. I shoot, shoot the guy if I ran into trouble. Again. I've said it so much this episode that it just doesn't even matter because I can't bring myself to literally say anything else. <laughs> but holy fucking shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like, holy fucking shit. And the sad part is that when you're a sex worker, the law enforcement, they don't give a shit if you die. Not they don't at give all. a shit if you get raped. They don't give a shit if you get beaten. If you're a woman in the sex work industry... You are overly taken advantage of, and sometimes you will lose your life. It's fucking... In many cases, 
It's sad. Like this is this case is a true depiction of the horrors of society. Right. Truly it is. Like that's the overlaying theme here. <laughs> I'd have to agree. Eileen stormed out after 35 minutes of talking with Nick and Nick was hoping she'd go into specifics on her cases but this angered Eileen so she was done talking. Nick Broomfield then said and I quote my conclusion from the interview is today we are executing someone who is mad. Here is someone who has totally lost her mind. Wow. Associated Press reported that serial killer Eileen Warnos was executed by lethal injection at 9.47 a.m. Wednesday, October 9th, 2002. More than a decade after she murdered six men along Central Florida highways while working as a prostitute, the execution took place at Florida State Prison near Stark, Florida. 46-year-old Eileen Warnos was the 10th woman in the U.S., and the second woman in Florida to be executed since the death penalty resumed in 1976. Prison spokesman Sterling Ivy said, We did wake her up at 5.30. She requested a towel and washcloth to wash her face and freshen up before the execution. She is very calm this morning, not as talkative as she always has been in the past. Eileen declined the traditional last meal, which could have been anything she wanted for under $20, and instead she requested a cup of coffee. These were Eileen's last words. I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock, and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie. Big mothership and all. I'll be back. The rock is a biblical term, reference to Jesus. Gotcha, gotcha. A half dozen anti-death penalty demonstrators were outside the prison, but were outnumbered by corrections officers. 32 witnesses watched as she was wheeled into the death chamber where an executioner pumped deadly chemicals into her system. Eileen Warnos went to her death willingly. Since her death, filmmaker Nick Broomfield directed two documentaries about her. Eileen Warnos, The Selling of a Serial Killer in 93 or 94, and Eileen, Life and Death of a Serial Killer in 2003. And in this documentary, the only time Eileen would open up about her case and the fact it was self-defense, <sighs> this one chills me to my bone. This one is really going to make you feel something. Okay. I'm going to play this clip for you now. Eileen waited until she thought we weren't filming to talk about the murders. I can't do it. I would never be able to handle a life sentence or anything. And then they've said other things that are really crazy. They do crazy things to the people while they're incarcerated. I'd never be able to handle it. So I'm going for the death. I have to because they're too evil. They're too evil to people incarcerated. And they're too evil on the cases. They're so corrupt. It's not funny. So I've got to go down. I have to. That's why I can't say nothing about self-defense on tape or anything. But was it self-defense? Huh? Was it self-defense? What? Was it self-defense? What? Was it self-defense? Yes, but I can't tell anybody. Never. 
I have to go down to the execution. They're too corrupt. They, they, they stick together, hand over fist, hand in glove, man. So it was something. Let's see. Hand, hand over fist, friend in glove. So it was, was Mallory self-defense? Yeah. And so was some others. But there's nothing I can do about it. All they do is give me an overturned sentence. They would never do me righteous. You see what I'm saying? They'll never do me right. They'll only fuck me over some more. So I can only go to the death. I'm speechless. Yeah. I'm speechless. I have chicken legs. <laughs> I have more than chicken legs. Like, this is sad. Oh my fucking God, this is sad. And you know, I'll just make it as brief as I can. I won't start this whole tangent. Does it make it right in any capacity that she killed, you know, seven men? I can't, in you know, in right conscience say that. But I also believe what she's saying. Right. I believe what she's saying. I do believe that society is cruel. I believe that the government is evil. I don't care if I sound like a conspiracy theorist. I don't fucking care. Quite honestly, don't even talk to me about it. But this kind of injustice and this kind of horror, this this evil, it happens. And yeah. it's there. And it's like, oh man, I don't even know how to compose my thoughts. I'm feeling so much. That is moving. That is so moving. I honestly believe her. I yeah. really truly do. Who were we to say? Right. None of us were there. Fuck. It's like, a lot. fuck. And that clip was basically part of Nick Broomfield's documentary. But there were other, you know, TV shows where she was the subject, you know, documenting her crimes. The film Monster from 2003 starred... Charlize Theron and Christina Ricci and it tells Violene's story from childhood up until her first murder conviction and the film earned Charlize Theron the 2003 Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance as Eileen Warnos and then there was also another movie called Overkill the Eileen Warnos story which was um, in 1992 which starred Jean Smart and I've also seen another one called Eileen Warnos the American Boogie Woman and it's sickening it was so bad I couldn't get past the first 10 minutes because obviously as I'm researching this case I'm watching the movies so I could you know see what the portrayal was right right it was just it was terrible they painted her out to be ugly you know, she wasn't an ugly person, and they made her out to be extremely vulgar, and, you know, the like. Just painting her as this character that she wasn't. That's so sad. The singer Jewel wrote a song about Eileen called Nicotine Love. Oh, okay. And after Eileen's execution, her body was cremated. Her ashes were taken by Don Bodkins, who was her best friend, to her native town in Michigan and spread her ashes beneath a tree. Eileen requested that Natalie Merchant's song Carnival be played at her funeral. Natalie Merchant commented on this when asked why her song was played 
during the credits of the documentary Eileen, Life and Death of a Serial Killer. Natalie Merchant said, quote, When director Nick Broomfield sent a working edit of the film, I was so disturbed by the subject matter that I couldn't even watch it. Eileen Warnos led a tortured, torturing life that is beyond my worst nightmares. It wasn't until I was told that Eileen spent many hours listening to my album, Tiger Lily, while on death row and requested Carnival be played at her funeral that I gave permission for the use of the song. It's very odd to think of the places my music can go once it leaves my hands. If it gave her some solace, I have to be grateful. Oh, God, chills. Chills, fuck. Nick later stated, I think this anger developed inside her, and she was working as a prostitute. I think she had a lot of awful encounters on the roads, and I think this anger just spilled out from inside her and finally exploded into incredible violence. That was her way of surviving. I think Eileen really believed that she had killed in self-defense. I think someone who's deeply psychotic can't really tell the difference between something that is life-threatening and something that is a minor disagreement that you could say something that she didn't agree with. She would get into a screaming black temper about it, and I think that's what had caused these things to happen. And at the same time, when she wasn't in those extreme moods, there was an incredible humanity to her. At the last resort bar, her friends that knew her put up a toast and said she picked a beautiful day to die. And that concludes the story of Eileen Warnos. I'm about in fucking tears. It's terrible. Especially that last bit about what Nick had to say about Eileen. Oh my God, I literally filled the tears behind my eyes. Like, she had so much trauma. Am I saying that makes it right? No, but that just really fucking hit my heartstring. But this opens up an opportunity for a very hard conversation at the same time. Because, yes, she killed those men. Absolutely. But what did those men do to make her feel threatened to kill them? Right, because she didn't kill every single person that she was with. Right. So, I mean, I believe you on that. I'm not trying to take away from, you know, the crimes or anything. Like, this is just a complicated spot to be in because you have one hand where it's like, I don't want to take away from the families that lost loved ones. Right. You know, regardless of what kind of people they were, you don't want to take away from that. But at the same time, it's that point you just said. She didn't kill every single man she was with. So why did she particularly kill these seven? One of them having a very extensive past of sexual violence and assault. Well, not only these, the families of the victims may not have even known that these men were like this. That's what I'm saying, too. It's Because like, every woman can sit there and tell you of someone who has raped her or molested her or something to that manner, but nobody can sit and say, oh, yeah, Richard's a rapist. Because they don't ever portray that. Right. That's the dangerous part. They don't outwardly portray that. They wouldn't have victims if they did. Right. That's the fucking scary part about it. So at the end of this, man, this is heavy. 
very, very heavy. I just said it a handful of minutes ago. This case, the overlaying theme is the absolute horror of society and how it treats women to be more specific. Like this is just, there's so many layers and so many places that this case takes you. I honestly am on the side of, I, and I don't, you know, if I get added for this, I don't care. I believe Eileen was a victim and I believe this was a fucking tragedy. And I, I hate this. Not only was she a victim of something that she couldn't control, which was her childhood and the way her life lined out. She, yeah. couldn't, she couldn't control that. But she is also a victim to the system fucking her over. As they fuck everyone over, to say the very least. I mean, this is, my God, like, I, I don't know if I've said this in a while. My brain is so frazzled, but bitch... <laughs> you did the damn thing a little too well. I feel like I'm going to fucking cry. <laughs> and I am so happy. Like, I am beyond happy. I am exuberantly excited that the damn thing is done. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. It's a lot. So, you guys... We know today's case was a lot. I definitely hope that you enjoyed it slash maybe not really enjoyed it because it was fucking terrible. But to close this episode out, if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, well, we do have great news for you. You can do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. At Gore Report. Don't forget our email, guys gorereportpod at gmail.com So, yeah, you guys, this may be a little disappointing, but I honestly really don't have too much of a funny rant at the end of this one because my brain is overloaded and I feel like I could just fucking cry. <laughs> so that's all for today, you guys. <laughs> Bye! Bye. Are you afraid? You should be. You me.